This is the current federal tax development for June the 27th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your society, your state society, I should say, of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this we're going to look at a number of developments that have taken place in the area of federal taxes, and that will include the Senate Finance Committee unanimously passed their version of the retirement bill, uh, version you may recall passed the House a while back. We now get a Senate movement on it. Uh, timing means that we may not see a whole lot happen real quick on it because Congress will be heading out of town here shortly. But it does mean that it's probably more likely now that we're going to see at least some action on this before the end of the year. Also, we have both the IRS and National Taxpayer Advocates Office releasing information on the IRS's processing for paper returns. And they imply a couple of different stories. Then also the Taxpayer Advocates Office gives us some more information about how the IRS is handling phone calls, as well as how the IRS is dealing with issues that relate to correspondence received from taxpayers. So we have a couple of odd things to work with there. We'll talk about that. The U.S. Supreme Court, and no, I'm not going to talk about that other decision this week. Rather, though, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, this week got us into a case where, I should say, they've agreed to take on and we'll hear a case involving FBAR reporting and specifically how you compute the penalties. And right now, there's a split in the circuit that, in the case in question, makes the difference between the penalty being $2.72 million, which is what the Fifth Circuit has said the penalty should be, and only $50,000, which is how the Ninth Circuit would have computed the penalty. So not wanting to have that big a difference in result, depending upon whether you live in California or Texas, the Supreme Court is going to take this little issue up. So we'll see that coming. And also, finally, the IRS announced they've added voice bot support for some automated collection system services, specifically dealing with installment agreements. So we'll talk a bit about that. But let's talk about the Senate Finance Committee's action on the Enhancing American Retirement Now EARN Act, which had their markup on on June 22nd. Apparently, the Rise and Shine uh, acronym got a little bit too long. So we're now back to the EARN Act in this case. And this week, the Senate Finance Committee held their markup on the bill. And we all know that there, or should say, you should remember from earlier discussion, that we did have a retirement bill make it out of the House with unanimous votes from the House Ways and Means Committee and little opposition when it actually got to a floor vote. This is now also, this bill has unanimous backing from the Senate Finance Committee. But we don't know what's going to happen in the Senate itself, but it seems likely we may see a similar level of support there. The catch is now becomes more the timing. The problem is that this is an election year and Congress is already itching to get out of town for the 4th of July, if they haven't already gotten there. I think by now we may be close to that. And then that only gives a very short time period when they get back before they take their annual August recess. And when they get back in September, we're going to be in full election mode. So it may not be till the end of the year we get this, but we'll keep our eye on it. Now, one thing to look for here is what changed in this bill versus the House. The Senate added a refundable 
savers credit. That's the credit that some taxpayers with income below certain levels can qualify to receive for making contributions to IRAs or employer retirement plans. Under the proposed bill here, that credit would be refundable, but there would be a requirement that any such funds be deposited into a retirement account. In essence, the taxpayer would not get money to put in their pocket. Rather, they would get a boost in what goes into the retirement account. This was not a addition. It was an addition that the Democrats on the committee wanted. Uh, the Republicans weren't really heavily behind it. And one of the reasons was, as noted by uh, former Senate Finance Committee Chair uh, Chuck Grassley, is a concern about how the IRS would be able to handle this. And I do think as a practical matter, that may be a very real concern, given an issue, given issues we'll talk about later here, about the IRS not really, you know, things aren't working well there currently. And so in the back of my mind, I'm kind of on the senator's side in that regard, in terms of, you know, whatever you think one way or the other about the actual, you know, goal we have here, the policy goal. Um, you do have to realize that implementation may be very problematical for the IRS in the short term. But that is at least one thing being talked about. Again, it is in the Senate bill, not in the House bill. Yeah, other hitch here. Because we have different bills, it appears, that will come out of the Senate and House, unless the Senate somehow amends back to the House bill on the floor, it's very likely that we end up in a conference committee. So these things would probably be decided in conference eventually. The Senate bill also removed what had been in the House bill that would have required a auto-enrollment uh, for 401k plans. That is, if an employer sponsors a 401k or a similar plan where the employee can defer into it, they want to go from, remember just a few years ago, we were allowed to have auto-enrollment provisions in our plans. And then when we got to the SECURE Act, we had various things to encourage that, give some credits. Then the theory was the House this time would switch directly over to requiring all 401k plans to auto-enroll new employees unless they opted out. The Senate has pulled that, although there is discussion that at least the chair has agreed that he would push for that in a conference committee. So we'll see about that, but that one may or may not be around. There, it was an interesting change made, and th this is there are two parts to this. One thing that was in the House bill was a bill that would render retirement funds, retirement benefits received by first responders to be essentially excluded from income. However, that wouldn't have taken effect until 2028. Now what we have is that in the Senate bill, we're going to make that effective you know, for years beginning after enactment of this bill. So at least in theory, if we get this done here in 2022, it would take effect in 2023. But that does cost money. So this one now added a provision that will put some interesting limits on the deductibility of conservation easements. Uh, specifically, you can't claim a deduction that is more than two and a half times your basis in the easement. This is meant to basically clamp down on syndicated conservation easements. 
It would allow certain non-syndicated easements to correct certain problems with deeds and documents after the fact. However, it would not extend that benefit to the syndicated programs. There's a lot of, shall we say, angst about the syndicated conservation easement programs that they have become potentially abusive in the view of the IRS. And it appears Congress shares that view. And so they found this as a money-raising opportunity. So we'll have to keep an eye on that if you have a client, you know, if, if you or a client have been involved in that. Unlike, though, the proposal we had back in 2021 that would have done this, this one would not be retroactive. It would only apply beginning, you know, as of the date of enactment. So, you know, there was some fight. It almost became law a year ago, but did not become law due to objections reportedly from Senator Sinema of Arizona about the retroactive provision on it. So we'll see how it works this time, but that could be part of the bill too. Again, at this point in time, we still have to have the Senate act on the program. Nothing scheduled currently for them to do so on the floor. And then once it passes, you would have to have a conference committee convened and then a conference bill would have to be produced and go back to the House and Senate for a new vote. The good news on this, I guess, or good news if you want to see a tax law change, is that there's a lot of support for this, right? It, there's very little opposition we found for this specifically. However, you know, the problem is you got to get things through the Senate or House this year. If this moves, though, this could become the vehicle on which Congress also fixes a problem inherited from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Well, that presumably everybody knew we were going to quote on fix uh, when we did this. Remember, in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, research and experimental expenditures now must be amortized beginning in 2022. That was a change put in. 174 used to allow us to expend those. Now we're going for amortization with a different amortization life depending upon whether or not you uh, have it over whether it's domestic or foreign-based research and experimental expenditures with the foreign versions having longer periods for amortization. There's an expectation that this was going to be set back to allow expensing. There is probably a reasonable expectation that Congress will do that at some point this year. But right now we're looking for the vehicle. This could be the vehicle that eventually rides into the law on. So keep an eye on that as well if you're worried about the research issue and the deduction. Next up, a tale of two different reports. Uh, there was an IRS news release, which we'll talk about here briefly, and then also a the National Taxpayer Advocates basically mid-year report to Congress uh, for this year. And we'll talk about kind of the differences in what those two reports tell us. Now, the IRS news release, which is, in this case, news release IR 2022-128, which was issued on June the 21st, uh, basically says IRS hits major milestone in return processing. And what that news release told us was that this past week, the IRS has completed processing all individual returns filed in 2021 on paper that were filed on paper that had no errors. Now, again, that's not all returns, as we know, because no, contains errors could be 
errors introduced by RS key punching. It could be errors by the taxpayer. There could be lots of issues there, but not necessarily errors that result from the IRS, you know, errors that are coming to us, I should say, related to just the taxpayer fouling something up. So that's there. And also, again, this is only the 2021 filings. So it means that, yeah, we should probably expect the, the ones we're putting together now, which will include those 2021 income tax returns that are being filed on paper. Yeah, a number of them could very well drag, even if there's no complication in processing, very possibly till this time next year. So it wasn't necessarily all good news, but, it, you know, it was generally upbeat. And if you're a little cynical, you may think the Irish was looking for something upbeat to say about processing, knowing that the next day the National Taxpayer Advocate would go to Capitol Hill to give her basically mid-year or end-of-tax season report on how things were going with the IRS. And this report was decidedly more downbeat than the report we got from that IRS news release. A uh, couple of quick uh, highlights. It doesn't look good. In fact, as we'll point out here, the IRS is 1.3 million returns further behind in handling paper returns at this point this year than they were at essentially the same point a year ago. Now, actually, this was toward the end of May because the National Taxpayer Advocate has to cut off a report and then assemble it up and go to Congress. So, But as of that point, the IRS actually lost ground compared to the year before in terms of processing returns. So that doesn't look good, especially since, you know, since May of 2021, we have not had the kind of hard shutdowns and slow down, you know, all those issues to deal with COVID. It's been released up quite a bit. It would seem, if anything, it was more, it would have been easier for the service to process those paper returns in the period from May of 2021 to the end, to, let's say June 2021 to May of 22, then it would have been from June of 2020 to May of 2021. So it's a little concerning that, we're, that we didn't get better, especially since remember that the uh, commissioner has stated the IRS is going to be all caught up by the end of this year. That, and by the way, the taxpayer advocate is very, very uh, skeptical of that kind of statement, indicating the number of returns that have to process, the rate that have to be processing things is around double what they're currently doing to make it work. Also, phone call answers were still uh, poor. Very small percentage of phone calls got answered, even though the number of calls was down from the year before. So we're talking about some of those issues. Now, the report has some real stats. One interesting one takes a look at paper returns awaiting processing in 2021 versus 2022. And as I said, it, it's not a good sign. If we look at individual returns between original and amended returns, we are actually up a million seven over last year. And individual original returns are actually up at this point by $2.1 million, million, not dollars, over the year before. Amended returns are actually slightly down. Now, you know, that, that may have to do with just the simple fact that we're getting more and more amended returns. Our eligible to be filed electronically now. There may be simply many fewer, many fewer 
amended returns on paper. Uh, business returns, in this case, were also up. They are, were at $6 million one a year ago. They're now up to $7 million four. And that's a potential problem. And amended, amended business returns are actually up by 400000 over a year ago. Uh, the generic non-specified other types of returns, those are actually where we've had a significant decrease. In that case, we saw the number go down from $5 million one to $3 million four. So that means overall, while at the, let's say, at basically May 22nd, 2021, the IRS was sitting on 20 million unprocessed paper returns. At May 27, 2022, so approximately one year later, the IRS is sitting on 21.3 million, or an increase of 1.3 million over the prior year. Phone calls are also depressing. Uh, in the 2021 season, you know, the basically the filing season, so from January through this through the May date. The IRS received 167 million calls. They answered 15.7 million. So that was a 9% rate with the average time on hold being 20 minutes. Uh, for 2022 season, the number of calls went down by over half to 73 million. But only 7.5 million of those calls were answered by the IRS. That results in a percentage answered of just over 10%. And the average time on hold actually went up to 29 minutes. Now, I'm sure some of you are probably going to be thinking, that looks rather optimistic. They're actually getting to one out of 10 calls. I understand that too. I'm certain though that this, this counts all the various lines that may come in. And I'm certain there are some that don't have a lot of volume that maybe are getting people through, but not to process the things we need processed, which is a different problem. And on responses to notices about proposed adjustments, that number this year is 251 days to respond. So when the taxpayer responds, IRS sends out a notice. Taxpayer writes back, says, IRS, you're wrong. Here's my information. This year, it would take the IRS 251 days to get back to the taxpayer on that response. Before we had the whole COVID year, 2019, the last year pre-COVID, that was 74 days, and we didn't think that was great then. We all used to joke about the 45-day letter, right? You automatically got that letter that we've received your we've received your information, and we'll give you a response in 45 days. That came out, you know, somewhere around, you know, 45 days after you got the first letter in. Well, yeah, now we're we would love to get back to that. We're not there yet, uh, and the report notes that. Because of the long time it takes the IRS to process an individual return, and then the time it takes to deal with any return that has an error, and the time it takes to process correspondence, that if the IRS erroneously issues a math error notice, and we know we see those, right, it is probably going to delay the refund by over a year if the taxpayer was expecting a refund. It easily kicks beyond that just because of the average time to process the erroneous return, you know, and identify it and figure out what to do with it, followed by the amount of time it takes the IRS to actually respond to any notices. So, not good news, shall we say. Next up, the U.S. Supreme Court, who actually did something besides issue, you know, the one opinion on Friday that everybody's been talking about. Uh, they actually did announce on the 21st of June that they were going to grant cert 
in the case of Bittner versus United States. Now, the Bittner case involves the penalty for the annual FBAR filing to notify the IRS, notify Treasury, about uh, the number of, you know, the foreign bank accounts you have an interest in or signature authority in. And we all know there is a $10,000 penalty. Just to say the non-willful penalty is $10,000. Willful goes up. But non-willful is 10000 now, the question, which we've had a split in decision on our two circuits, on two circuits has been, how much, how do we compute that penalty? Is that a $50,000 penalty for the FBAR form only, if any accounts are admitted, no matter how many there may be omitted, or is it a $50,000, or I should say a $10,000 penalty per account that was left off the report? Per the Ninth Circuit, which was a decision that came down last March, this limitation is on a per-form basis. So basically, you would have a single $10,000 penalty for the year, whether you forgot to, you know, whether you failed to list report one account or you failed to, to list 30 accounts. It'd still be a single $10,000 penalty. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in Bittner's case, which is the one that's technically going on appeal, there the Fifth Circuit said, no, 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 the proper way to do this is a per account basis. So in that case, if I have 20 accounts, right, so I have 20 accounts, instead of $10,000, I would be looking at penalties that are significantly higher, uh, $200,000. Now, in the case in question, the difference in penalties between what the Fifth Circuit said, yep, this is what applies, versus what the trial court, which followed the Ninth Circuit rule, uh, you know, said applied, is the difference between a $2.72 million penalty or a $50,000 one. There is a case pending in the Second Circuit that also had this issue before it. As it stands right now, I believe the parties have asked the Second Circuit to defer acting on that case until the Supreme Court rules on this because they're each saying effectively, you know, we know that the Supreme Court's going to decide the only thing we're really fighting over. So we're just going to sit back and whatever they do should decide this case. I would expect the Second Circuit to go along with that viewpoint, assuming there's no other issue to look at. And, you know, well, that will probably decide at that point. This is a split in the circuit. This is the sort of thing Supreme Court most often would decide to take up a case for. They don't like tax cases generally. They try to avoid them, to be honest, if they can. But when there is a clear split in the circuit, and it can be a huge difference. As I said, if this taxpayer had lived in California instead of Texas, that's a huge difference in the penalties they'd be facing. $50,000 versus over $2.7 million. Uh, I mean, I don't really like a $50,000 penalty, but if the alternative is $2.7 million of a penalty, I'll take the $50,000 penalty every day. We'll go down that path. Finally, we're going to talk about an IRS news release, 2022-127, issued on the 17th of June. And this is a entitled, IRS Expands Voice Bot Options for Faster Service, Less Wait Time. So what the IRS is announcing is they are going to have a new voice bot. That's one of those voices you talk to on the phone. 
that can understand what you say back, at least hopefully, and interact with you to do that. Uh, actually, I have such a voice bot on my uh, Pixel phone. One of my phones is a Pixel. And yeah, so you know the Google Assistant will nicely interact with whoever is calling if they don't know who it is and get information. I actually worked this week uh, when, a la- when the lab that I had a, a particular test being run through, they had a problem. The sample wasn't that they took wasn't appropriate, was insufficient. Uh, blood draw, meaning I need to go back. Uh, but actually, we did have the, uh, the the lab, you know, the lab person calling to inform me about that. Actually, did have this conversation with the Google Assistant. That I got the transcription of, and okay, yeah, I understood what exactly to do, how to take care of it, what was going on. Kind of interesting. Uh, the IRS now has these. Now, what it mainly is going to do, it's going to allow you to uh, set up or modify installment agreements. And if you're calling, then they do remind you that you're going to need to provide certain information. If you have the IRS billing notice, which you probably do if you're working with this, you're going to need information from that that the bot will ask you about. You're also going to need information from prior returns. I suspect that is the normal uh, question to ask you what address maybe was on that return, as well as what your adjusted gross income was, things like that. If you clear that, though, apparently you will be able to uh, either set up an installment agreement or, you know, make modifications to the agreement through the automated system without having to uh, get on the phone with a live person, which, remember the uh, report from the taxpayer advocate, uh, that might take a while, a long while. So actually, you know, one of those things, not that bad when we go down this particular option. Okay, now, in this case, now the IRS describes in here what a voice bot is. And again, if you're not aware, I'll give you what the service says one is. And in this case, uh, voice bots run on software powered by artificial intelligence, which enables a caller to navigate an interactive voice response. And, you know, they, they have been using this since last since January to enable taxpayers to get certain information, or take care of certain things. This is just adding to that this time, right? It's not the first bot. Uh, currently, we they had one that helped with economic impact payments this year. If you need to call about that, Advanced Child Tax Credit toll-free line in February got this. And the later this year, they are expecting on adding uh, ones that will work, you know, with taxpayers with established or newly created PINs, for authenticated, so you have to get go through the authentication per, per process. I'll get the word out. They could give you your account return transcripts, your payment history, and the current value balance owed. And if you really want to, there actually is, and if you get the article here or go to our article on our website, they actually have a YouTube video that goes over, it's about a three-minute video, that goes over this ACS bot. So if you're thinking about uh, suggesting a taxpayer use it, or your taxpayer might want to use it, it could be useful to review that video to have some expectation of what's going to be coming if you actually get online and start working with that. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of June the 27th. I believe we're almost halfway through the year already. Yep, so, you know, when June 30 comes, that's the end, six months into the year, we're halfway home. So any event, which means another tax season coming, right? Yeah, you look at it that way.
As always, you can write questions to me, Ed Zollers at CurrentFullTaxDevelopments.com. I'll try to answer any questions I run into there. I also do pay attention to the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington, and take a look at any posts that come in on Idaho's discussion board. So if you have any issues or questions, you're a member of one of those societies, you can post and I'll see if I can, you know, answer any of the questions, see what goes on. Uh, I mem- you know, I'm members of the ones that are connect based. So I'm members of those societies so I, I can look in there and work with them. Uh, otherwise, we'll see what comes up this week. If we have, you know, what we have in terms of new developments, anything interesting happens, maybe we'll get an interesting case or two. Maybe the IRS will announce something else. Who knows? But in any event, we'll see you back here next week for more current federal tax developments.